0: For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now, stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. Welcome to Everything Cooperative. It's a beautiful day, and. What also makes it beautiful is we have Mr. Philip Thompson on the line with us. Good morning. this Good morning, Mr. Thompson. Good morning. Glad to be with you. Thank you so very much for taking time out. I got in doing a little research on you. You're a very busy man. you uh, got a lot on your plate. Yes, I do. And you're called the Deputy Mayor for Strategic Policy Initiatives. That's right. How did you come about that job? What's your educational background or what's your background?
1: I grew up in Philadelphia. I went to college at Harvard, and then after that I spent seven years as an organizer, much of it in the South. And then I went to New York City, uh, and I went to planning school uh, while working for David Dinkins, uh, who eventually became the first black mayor of New York, but I worked for him uh, when he was borough president. And also when he was mayor and uh, first when I got a master's in urban planning, then a Ph.D. in political science, urban policy at the City University of New York grad center. And during that time, I met the current mayor, Bill de Blasio, and we both worked for Dave Dinkins, uh, you know, a quarter century ago. Mm -hmm. So I was teaching at I taught at uh, MIT for 18 years as a professor of urban planning and politics and at Columbia University before that. And I was teaching a class in the Amazonian region in Columbia, South America, when the mayor called me about a year ago and asked me would I consider coming back in the government or had I ever thought of coming back in the government.
0: And I told him, never. Never, never, never. never. And here you find yourself back in. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, what made the change? Honestly,
1: I... I felt that uh, with Trump in office and the direction the country is headed, now was not the time for me to stay in the ivory tower. I needed to do all I could to try and create viable alternatives um, to what we're seeing now in public policy.
0: Viable alternatives. Correct. I like that because, um, well, we're we'll trying not to talk about Trump, but only talk about viable alternatives. Okay. And how did you like teaching? The reason I asked you, I taught for 12 years, and I love it. So how did you like teaching?
1: I really enjoyed it, and I enjoyed teaching in an urban planning program. At Columbia, I taught in the political science department, the business school, and the School of International Affairs. Um, I was in three departments. But at MIT, the urban planning program and MIT in general really focuses on practical implementation and practical application. And so I got to combine research with on-the-ground work, uh, getting students out into the field. I worked in Peru after an earthquake. Um, I worked in New Orleans after Katrina, in Haiti after the earthquake. And really, you know, my students and me, we learned a lot on the ground. And to me, that was richly rewarding and continues to be.
0: Richly rewarding with viable alternatives. All right. Taking research and make it work. Right. Um, So a question I normally would ask people at the end of the program is, do you like what you're doing? But you've already said you've already answered that question. Yeah. (laughs) You you love what you do. Okay. So you said, no, you weren't going to come back into public service. And then based on what's happening here in the U.S. with our current president, you said, how can I – how can i do viable options so yes. deputy right. mayor for strategic policy initiatives those initiatives would be poli- would be viable options i guess
1: yes that's really my job to help the mayor figure out how to make new york city a place where people can see glimpses of the future things that we could do at a grander scale if only the political will existed in the nation to do things differently
0: so let's uh, quicker than I had thought, but let's figure out what are some of those initiatives? What's some glimpses of the future? I'm curious.
1: One is we have, uh, the mayor initiated something called Universal Pre-K, which is quality public school education for every four-year-old in the city who wants it. And this year we launched Universal 3K, which is Uh, the beginning of a program to offer quality public education for every three-year-old in the city who wants it. And this is important for a couple reasons. One, research shows that what happens to kids between birth and age five actually is really critical for what happens when they start elementary school and go through school and later in life. So starting early is really important. Secondly, I've heard mothers tell me that they were working two jobs to pay the $2,000 a month cost for having their four-year-old or three-year-old in preschool at some private institution. And now that there's a public option, they're able to go to community college to further their own education and skills, and they don't have to work two jobs. And That's it's just been enormous in terms of creating opportunities for working Parents as well in the city. So that's one example.
0: That is great. In doing a little research for this program, it looked like those mothers, perhaps single moms, paying $2,000 a month, that might be 50% of their income. That might be 100% of their income. Oh, my God.
1: And, you know, so many parents can't work two jobs because they have rent to pay and everything else. And their kids simply don't get access to pre-K. So this program is making that available citywide.
0: Okay, so if somebody was only making 2000 a month, then they couldn't send their kids to pre-K. Right, don't, don't they get... have
1: to get a second full-time job. And many parents are doing that, by the way, because they want so much for their kids to have more
0: opportunities than they had. That's the American dream. That's it. That's the American dream. And that's why so many people want to come to America.
1: That's true. That's true. But it's
0: harder and harder to realize that dream,
1: not only in New York, but, you know, across the country, the cost of housing in New York for families making under 30000 a year can be 60% of their income often. It's just really hard. And wages in America haven't really increased for 30 years for most people for most workers, not in real terms. So it's harder than ever.
0: So if you've got 50 to 100 percent of your income going to child care and another 60 percent going to housing, that doesn't add up to it. I, I've got a master's in math and I could kind of 50 and 60 is 110 or 160. <laughs> <Exactly> right. Um, <laughs> so you so can't have housing and health uh, and child care or health care or food. That's that right. Can. The puzzle. And,
1: and don't forget finance charges. You know, most. Uh, African-American, most Latino families nowadays don't have a regular banking account um, because of, you know, high charges for having a a regular bank account. And they go to these check cashing places or payday loan places just in order to access their own money. And the interest rates that they pay on average are about 400 percent if they were on an annual basis. So that's another big hit that low-income families are enduring as well. So the question is, like, how do people even survive?
0: That is a huge question. Mm -hmm. That's a huge—and I guess it's people, 5 and 10, 15 people, living in a one-two bedroom. Uh, You're right.
1: There's a lot of that. One of the things we're working on now is getting everyone to fill out the census because the Trump administration has said they're going to put a question— on the census, are you a citizen or not? And it frightens many immigrants who may not be here legally because they're scared to fill it out. Many of these folks are doubled up also. And in public housing, many families are doubled up, two families in one apartment, and they're afraid of being discovered by the housing authority. So they're afraid to fill out the census too. But if people don't fill out the census, it just means less federal money coming to New York City. So, you know, we have to tackle these kinds of problems right now just to take away the fear and make sure that people, you know, are not penalized for filling out the census. But many, many people are living
0: precarious lives right now. So, Mr. Thompson, how many people are in New York City now? Uh, Almost nine million. And of those nine million, um, do you have a sense of how many live below the poverty line?
1: Well, I would say, in real terms, probably close to 40%. One in two people in Brooklyn and in the Bronx are on Medicaid, which gives you some
0: indication. So 50% of the people in Brooklyn and the Bronx are on Medicaid. Right.
1: And we have a huge number. We have 3.5 million immigrants, and uh, many of them don't qualify for some federal benefits and many of them are in poverty, and it's hard to get accurate numbers on that.
0: So the guess is 40 maybe up there. I was thinking if not, at least 50% of the people are probably can't afford that housing and that child care and food and health care.
1: That's probably about right. The top uh, 1% of New York City residents in terms of income last year earned – over 40% of all the income in the city.
0: The top 1% of New Yorkers earn 40% of all of the income in New York.
1: Right, about 42% of all the income in the city was went to less than 1% of the
0: city population. Okay, so this really gets to this inequality of, uh, of wealth and income distribution. Right. Okay, so this program is called Everything Co-op. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So I wonder, we, we, we've we outlaid the problem really well, and uh, Reverend Barber does a really good job. William Barber does a really good job of talking about poor people and the poor people campaign. Right. And he lays it out very well also. And then it's like, what do we do about it politically and economically? I think that is the question.
1: And something I like to point out to African-Americans is that the racial gap in income Is the same now as it was in 1955. Median black workers' incomes are about 55, 56% of white incomes now. And it's the same, it was the same in the mid 1950s before the beginning of electing black elected officials and numbers and before civil rights legislation. So on the economic front, you know, there hasn't been so much progress. And in terms of wealth, the wealth gap is actually expanding between uh, most white families and most black families. And so the economic challenge that was the main concern of Martin Luther King uh, at the time of his death, that's still in front of us. We have not tackled that. We have
0: not overcome. We've got to to take a break and come back to that and begin to talk about some of the solutions. We'll be right back. Please don't touch that dial. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Cooperative, and we have Mr. Philip Thompson on the line from New York. He's the deputy mayor for Strategic Policy Initiative. In his first segment, we talked about the problems of most of the people in, in the United States and in the world, but particularly we're talking about New York City with a population of 9 million people, and approximately 50% of those people cannot afford the basic necessities. And Mr. Thompson is looking at different initiatives to help that. And we talked about the 4K program and the 3K program. And we'll begin to talk about some other other initiatives that you're working on. Welcome back, Mr. Thompson. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure talking to you. I don't like had the conversation because the income gap is tremendous. The wealth gap is even bigger. Right. And and we normally talk about income, how much money you make, how much do you have to spend, what's your disposable income. But the real thing is how much wealth do you have and have you been able to create wealth? And I heard a stat in D.C., and I don't quite remember, but I, I, it was something like the average wealth for a white family in a district was $250,000. And I may be off. It could have been four fifty. dollars But I remember the black and brown family was $3,500 was the average wealth. And that's a huge, huge gap. Right. I,
1: there was a study in Boston last year and the black median wealth was under $700 and the white median wealth was over $150,000. Nationally, it's about 80 to 1 between median white and median black families and similarly with Latinos. And it's, it's been growing. So in about 20 years, Black median wealth is projected to hit zero, and white median wealth is projected to be about one hundred sixty thousand. If we don't do something, if we don't do something, correct.
0: And what's so bad? When I was sitting in the room and I heard this three thousand five hundred dollars for the average black and brown family in Washington D.C., and I'm going, "Well, mine is a lot more than that." So that means a lot of people here, they don't—they have maybe a negative net worth. That's
1: absolutely right. And I saw some data last year saying that uh, for black women, the medium, median wealth is
0: $7. My God. Yeah. My God. Oh, my God. Okay. All right. My mouth is open. All right. I had not heard that number, and that's frightening. Yeah. Okay. African Americans have about as
1: much, close to the same proportion of wealth, compare the national wealth as we did in eighteen sixty eight.
0: In the midst of slavery.
1: Three years after slavery.
0: Right. Okay, so this this racism continues and the effect of it really shows if black women have a seven dollar medium wealth. Seven Sure. I mean, you know, I'm sixty two for
1: a lot of African Americans of my generation You know, my father, their parents came from the South, and there were no pensions, and you couldn't get in a union, and a lot of middle-aged black folks are trying to take care of their parents who don't have much to live on beyond Social Security, which isn't enough, and they're also trying to send their kids to college or help them get a start in life, and they're competing and their kids are competing with white families that, you know, got a house in the GI Bill and the house appreciated in value, so they have equity and they're able to translate that into low-interest loans or money they can give their kids to start off or pay a college tuition. And, and so those, that history, the effects of it are with us today. It's not something that's over and done with. It, it compounds.
0: So that's what we are challenged with. Well, I've got you by a couple years. I'm 71 this year. Okay, and good for you, man. And when my father passed, he left me a $2,000 worth of bills which I paid off. I was pleased to be able to pay that off. So that was I am Right there with you. And my I have a very good friend, he's a white guy who's a lawyer, and his father had a business, car dealership. And he grew up that way, but then they had no loans for college. He he gets a car every year because wow. he and his brothers now still own it. And he's working. He's not working there, but he gets a car. So he didn't have to pay that. And then he, the, I believe he told me that they gave his parents gave him money for the down payment of the first home, which when they sold that in D.C., they built a home in Rock Creek Park, right in the nice area. Yeah, he's raised his three boys. They're doing extremely well, and they're great people. So yep. I'm not I, I'm not knocking that, but the difference in the way they step off, the difference in the way they they get started is huge. And, yes, and, and 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 how that then translates into well being and safety and feeling good about oneself or not, it it all goes in there. So yeah, it's major.
1: I will add one more. Statistic. I know you want to move on, oh. but the children of the baby boomer generation amongst 70 percent or so of white families, they're going to inherit over the next 20 years, roughly, 30 trillion dollars with a T, 30 trillion dollars. Black and Latino families will inherit virtually nothing. And as you said, many will inherit debt. And so the wealth gap is gonna explode even beyond where it is now,
0: unless something happens. All right, I'm scared. You got me you got me. You got me generally scared. All right, so so you've got kids starting school earlier, which helps the, the families that they don't either don't have to have the second job or they can take that money and begin to build wealth. Uh, mm-hmm. if, after they eat and have right. uh, housing. Uh, what are some of the other things? Uh, I, I guess in the finance charge charges you were talking about, that's another particular problem when people are paying a 400% interest rate to just get their, their own money, get their paychecks cashed and, yeah. and perhaps the right checks or pay bills. Uh, so what are some of the other initiatives you're taking?
1: So there's a close to $1 billion a year out of city tax levy money that is being spent now for community mental health. It's a program called Thrive, and it was pioneered by the first lady, Sherlane McRae, who's African-American. And the demand for uh, mental health and social emotional learning and training and support in communities of color is just overwhelming. Eight um, percent of public school students in New York attempt suicide before graduation, and so that's just one indicator. Um, and low-income folks don't have the resources to hire, you know, a psychologist or a psychiatrist, and to have counseling, you know, or, or social supports to deal with all the pressures and tensions that they're confronted with every day. And so that's another initiative that we think is really important. If you're really stressed out about what's going on at home or you're afraid to walk to school or, you know, you have other issues, it's really hard to focus in school. It's really hard to focus at work. It's really hard to think about or create your own business. So that's another one of the initiatives that's big that
0: we've started. Well, I know um, I do property management as my full time job, and right. I I deal with folks with mental issues, and it is a problem. It is a major problem. Yeah. Um, and 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 sometimes I mean they're good people, and they want to do well, and they have a disease. So how, how do you deal with this? And I, one billion dollars is a little bit of money. That's that's cool, particularly since Reagan took a lot of money out of mental health.
1: Yeah.
0: Okay. But Ooh. you
1: know, it's just. It's something that the city is doing of its own initiative. We'd love to see more federal support in this area. It's just one of the things that needs
0: to happen. Uh, We're also – Well, before you go into the next one, we've got to take our next break. Okay. And when we come back, we've already – I knew knew when we talked before this would – we could spend two or three hours on this. But I want to get into the different things you're doing in the co-op world to to help with this creating wealth and minimizing this wealth gap. Great. Uh, We'll be right back after the break. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. The program is Everything Cooperative. It's sponsored by the National Cooperative Bank, NCB was created to address the financial needs of a traditionally underserved uh, markets and cooperatively owned organizations that operate for the benefit of their members, not outside investors. So cooperatives uh, operate for the benefits of their members and not outside investors. And our guest today is Mr. Philip Thompson, who's the Deputy Mayor for Strategic Policy Initiatives. And so, sir, what are some of the things that you all in New York are doing cooperatively?
1: One of the first things that we're doing is engaging communities and entrepreneurs, particularly in low-income communities, communities of color, in discussions about uh, what I call economic democracy or economic strategy and the conventional doctrine is that if you're going to be successful in business, you basically do it all by yourself. So it's all about building your individual skills and your business plan for yourself, etc. But if you look internationally, globally, the only countries that have really succeeded from going from being poor to being prosperous are countries that really engage their governments in working with entrepreneurs in cooperative strategies or strategies that involve, you know, leveraging government, but also getting businesses and workers to cooperate. And, you know, an example is South Korea, another is Taiwan, China, Japan, Germany, Scandinavia. None of them accepted this doctrine of people are going to succeed by just doing individual strategies. You have, If you're going to fight well-entrenched, much richer companies uh, in, an, in an economy, then you need to band together and leverage whatever assets you have. And so that's a conversation that we're trying to promote in New York City and actually work with folks to begin to understand what are assets that reside in communities, even if they're low-income individually. So, for example, a bunch of major labor unions in New York are overwhelmingly black and Latino, low-income Asian. And while individually these workers don't have money, collectively they have enormous sums of money. The Hospital Workers Union, which is mainly composed of home care workers who make less than $15 an hour, has a $13 billion pension fund. The unions representing city employees have a $200 billion pension fund just in New York City. So those are assets that could be deployed differently. Similarly, the city itself is a big anchor institution that buys more food than any other organization outside of the U.S. military, that spends $20 billion a year on infrastructure, and on and on. And so those are other assets because the people of New York who are over 65 percent black and Latino, over 70 percent people of color, they elect the leaders of New York City. So the resources of New York City can also be leveraged economically to help push more money into communities, get more money circulating within communities, But that requires people understanding the value of working together. Right. Right. So we start there.
0: Dr. Jessica Gordon-Nimhart in her book, Collective Courage, and she's talked on the program about that those individuals, the John Wayne types that we're going to do it ourselves, put ourselves up by our bootstraps and all of that, which I bought into, by the way, Mm -hmm. Uh, when I went and got my MBA, I bought into all of that. But that about only about, 10% Ten percent of those businesses are still in existence after five years right that, those, those normal capitalistic kinds of business that get started. but when people come together and they share their skill sets, they share their their, their knowledge, their experience, and whatever capital they have, then 90 percent of those businesses are still in existence after five years. Now some of, some of those some businesses that would have started don't start because they learn. <laughs> you find out oh, that's not really a good idea. Let's go back to the drawing board. And some of that happens is weeded out, so there's not failure, and there's learning that goes on. So that's one of the reasons I like this whole co-op world. Okay, so you train people on what this is all about and how folks can come together using the the monies. And this this thing in in uh, Cleveland of of uh, the universities, uh, the hospitals coming together and helping to create businesses. So there's institutions also that have wealth and that are buying food and laundry services and other things.
1: And well, wealth. yes. In the New York City area, there is an organization called the Greater New York Hospital Association, and that's like a trade association of about 200 hospitals in acute care centers, and they collectively purchase about $10 billion a year in goods and services. So they are really interested in leveraging their purchasing power to help support cooperative development because having a job and having a good job is actually the best thing for improving health. And they have seen a double benefit from leveraging resources to um, economically to promote both better incomes but also better health. Um, And that helps their bottom line as well. And so there are many anchor institutions that, you know, we are working with, and Cleveland also has been doing this with university hospitals and Cleveland Clinic, um, getting them engaged and screening, looking through everything they buy and purchase and saying, how much of this can we buy locally? How much of this can we steer towards businesses that have a double bottom line or triple bottom line? They're contributing to the community. And co-ops are one way of doing that. They're not a panacea.
0: right?
1: They're one way of doing that. And in New York, three years ago, the mayor and the city council started an initiative to help support co-ops, and they put in about 3 million a year to help grow co-ops. And that has created over 100 co-ops. It's led to 600 or so hires. But what we're trying to do now is actually to scale that up through building partnerships with established co-ops and uh, either outside of New York or internationally, uh, inviting them to come in and team up with uh, women in minority-owned businesses in New York City and create joint ventures so that co-ops can actually get bigger, faster. And it's great working with some of these partners because they share the value orientation of you know, sharing, of cooperation, of uh, worker ownership. And so it's not taking money out of New York. It's actually just helping uh, circulate more resources within the city.
0: So when you talk about economic democracy, uh, it reminded me of the book that Democracy Collaborative wrote on communities building wealth. And in that book, they talked about Christina out of New York, who I think she was a maid or she was either a maid or home care, and she went from $7 an hour to $20 an hour by joining the co-op, or either joining it or helping to start it. Um, Right. So that's one of the reasons I like co-ops is help, create financial wealth, and she chose to work less hours and spend time with her children. Um, and- well, there's, yes, but
1: I think co-ops are going to be even more important than they ever have been in the economy that's emerging. And the economy that's emerging is going to be much more technology-focused, and you're going to have robotics and artificial intelligence a lot more so you see Walmart is already using robots in some stores to stock shelves. And you see that banks are using artificial intelligence sometimes to replace tellers. If companies are privately owned, they have, they're under competitive pressures to always, you know, to introduce robots because it's cheaper. And that's going to lead to layoffs. But if companies are worker-owned, then they have options. They can introduce robots and then have workers have time to do upskilling or to branch off into new fields or simply to have a summer vacation, where some Walmart workers might not. They have options. Mm -hmm. And so as the economy becomes more and more robotic and technological, the need for worker ownership is going to increase.
0: I was thinking that it was going to be – that we're getting more and more worker owned cooperatives doing the technological to creating the robots and the artificial intelligence perhaps. I like I like your, your the side effect of it. They have right. more choices.
1: The other thing is I was working with Ford Motor Company and the United Auto Workers a little bit before I took this job. And the auto companies are Really beginning to invest in local manufacturing and bringing back urban manufacturing because as cars become battery powered, um, a car is basically a battery and then some tires and then a bunch of component parts that you just assemble. And you can assemble those cars in a city and you don't have to, and you can do it on demand. You don't have to have parking lots full of cars put in super tankers shipped from Japan or elsewhere. You can assemble the cars in a small area the size of a gas station, and people can even design their own cars. And so that's where auto was headed with new technology. The UAW was saying, you know, then the future auto worker is more like a designer and works with a client to help them think about and design the car for their own needs – and maybe co-ops are a much better form of organization for these kinds of workers who will be really designers and technicians, and it's not the old assembly line, and they're not going to like this top-down union structure that we have, so maybe the union ought to start thinking about becoming a co-op or starting more co-ops. So I think that's a second trend, which is going to be that in in creating new tech and the way the economy is moving, co-ops are going to be a more attractive form of manufacturing and production.
0: I've been out to two conferences in Cincinnati where the Cincinnati Union uh, Initiative with Cooperation, they, where the unions are doing just that. Yeah. And particularly manufacturing. That's right. And they also talked about the number of manufacturing jobs that go unfulfilled right now, and how many of these businesses are owned by baby boomers? When you talked about that $3 trillion or $30 trillion was going to be turned over. Yeah. How much is owned by baby boomers? And often the siblings or the children don't want that business. They don't want to operate in that business. So they will either get sold or they'll close. And why not get sold to the employees? So that's one of the things that's working in this union business and within manufacturing. It's, a, it's absolutely amazing if we can get the training that you're talking about to people where they understand what the co ops are and the benefits of cooperatives. You know, I, I
1: mentioned before that I taught at MIT for 18 years. And one of the things that I don't think many people realize is what the ecosystem looks like in this innovative technological ecosystem culture. At MIT, there are 1,000 professors by statute, by university statute. It doesn't get bigger. And those professors are affiliated with about 600 businesses in the, uh, surrounding MIT. And most of those businesses, or a huge number of those businesses, are cooperatives. And the average size is 12. What? And <laughs> okay. enjoy working in those kinds of environments. And that is where most of the innovation happens, or a lot of – in those small cooperative businesses. And then the big companies like Intel and Cisco and Microsoft and Apple, they all want to be near the cooperatives because they're so generative, the cooperatives are. And people share ideas, they have lunch, it's not very proprietary, and that is the ecosystem. That literally is what it is. And so co-ops are very popular with these young inventors. And
0: that's the future. That, uh, that I, I like a lot. And what I've, when I've gone to these conferences, whether it's in Cincinnati or housing conferences or whatever, this sense of, of sharing information, because the fifth principle is training information, this, this whole piece of learning. And we're taking our final break, and we have a lot we can talk about. Thank you, sir. We'll be right back. Sure. having a great great conversation sometimes sad happy joyous with um, Mr. Philip Thompson the deputy mayor for strategic policy initiatives and we were talking about this whole sense of MIT with these 600 businesses surrounding it with a thousand professors and a lot of them are co-ops I did not know that and that's where you get all of these generative ideas they, they create these ideas and they're openly share them. There's, there's sort of like no – this whole thing of competition doesn't happen as much in the cooperative world as it does in the shareholder capitalistic world.
1: That's right, and the whole open source movement is very much alive at MIT and Stanford and Caltech and these other sort of tech hubs. Um, that's a part of the culture. And there's a battle going on in the tech world over how do you really – maximize effectiveness and efficiency, nothing is more productive than lots of people sharing ideas freely and cooperating on the Internet or face-to-face. Nothing is more productive than that. And our property laws, our conventional notions of you don't share and keep everything to yourself actually limit productivity right now. It's the opposite of what is taught in orthodox economics or, you know, one-on-one in business school. So these are the
0: battles. I have fallen in love with this co-op model. I did not get – I was not taught it at Stanford when I got my MBA. Uh, <laughs> I got it when I started managing housing co-ops and watching everyday people, sometimes more often than not without a college degree, get in and make very good long-term decisions that was, what was best for the group as opposed to what's best for me, that when you particularly take the greed out. Uh, now, you do. You still have people being people, so that does flow in. But for the most part, uh, people make extremely good decisions, and a lot of training goes on, lots and lots of training. Um,
1: and that's the key, you know, when you have people really engaged in running their own organization, business, they learn what how to manage money. They learn how to make strategic decisions. They learn how to analyze what their competitors and other folks are doing. And that's how they build power. And, you know, some folks use co-ops very narrowly. In New York, you have a lot of wealthy housing co-ops that exclude poor people, people of color. They're not progressive. But you have a great deal more low-income housing co-ops and others, hundreds of low-income housing co-ops, that really have done, you know, provided quality housing affordably, Well maintained for many decades in this city. Um, So, co ops are an avenue for improving community lives and social transformation, but really for democracy because learning how to make responsible decisions is what's key to having a healthy democracy. And cities have enormous power, particularly as we're moving to create community micro energy grids to produce energy locally to develop new models of housing on land uh, trust, to procure uh, goods and resources, whether it be food or services or material goods um, and products. We can actually build many, many, many of these participatory, local, cooperative enterprises, and that's going to revive our democracy and give people more confidence in their own abilities.
0: Well, I've been trying to get Reverend Barber on the show so we could have that conversation, and I want to give a shout out to our councilwoman Anita Bonds in D.C., who created a task force, limited equity co-op is what it's called, but it's really limited equity housing co-ops, right? Because they do, and and she has found out, and and. Trying to educate the rest of the council and the city on all of the benefits that these approximately 100, 100, uh, multifamily, uh, housing have done since the mid 80s mostly. And that's on a backdrop of about 150 of these wealthy co-ops in the city that have been around since the 20s and 30s. So, so she's, she's got it. She's gotten the message and I'm fortunate enough to be on that, um, on that task force. And we're working with some of the people in New York to try to figure out what how do how do you keep these alive, preserve them, and how do you create more? Great. Yeah. Yeah. I think
1: they've been a, a a success in New York, but I don't know if you know this. I worked with uh, the Mississippi NAACP, headed by Derek Johnson, who's now head of the National NAACP. Um, and one of the things we learned was that. In eight counties, in eight majority black counties in Mississippi, they get their energy from rural electric cooperatives that were set up by President Roosevelt uh, through the Tennessee Valley Authority.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm. And they're prolific in, in five southern states. We found out that these co ops were the main financiers of the Mississippi Republican Party. And so black ratepayers in eight counties were funding the Mississippi Republican Party, which is not known of being supported of black folks in Mississippi. Anywhere. <laughs> okay. Right. Okay. And so the NAACP has been doing a lot of education in the community about the importance of running people to be on these boards, the importance of black mayors who are ex officio and sit on these boards really understanding the finances and what happens with these co-ops. And it's all about learning, you know, how co-ops, like anything else, you, you have to learn how to manage them and you have to pay attention. And just saying something as a co-op doesn't mean it's going to help you. Right. But other folks have used co-ops very strategically. And so it's been great. It's a learning process.
0: Well, I just want to shout out to the Federation of Southern Co-ops. When you mentioned Mississippi, they're in 13 southern uh, states, and they they started in the 67 after, after the riots and so forth. Or, and Cornelius Blanding is running that. I'm going to give a shout out to him to see if he knows about that. I'm sure he does because they've
1: been at this a long time. and. They've been working and doing just this kind of cooperative education. But I think the opportunity right now is great because of the green transformation and the technological transformation, green technology, whether it's energy or building retrofits or whatever is wide open to community ownership and cooperative ownership. And so is much of technology.
0: Okay, sir. We only have a couple more minutes. What other message do you want to leave people with?
1: Well, you know, for us, we are beginning to network with other cities we're beginning to talk to more MWBEs about the ideas of co-ops and the values of cooperation even amongst MWBEs and we think we have opportunities to scale up co-ops so they actually go from kind of being small mini experiments to major employers over time and You know, we are looking in our city on how to strengthen infrastructure for cooperative development. So can we, through our city university system, train lawyers on cooperative law? Mm -hmm. Can we, at our business schools in the city university system, introduce curriculum on cooperative management and cooperative development? Can we find uh, ways to finance co-ops at a higher level than we do now? So we're working to put all that stuff together so that – The movement begins to build over time, and particularly as technology threatens to displace people, there are already existing um, alternatives and capacities to make those things happen.
0: Great. Now, I've been trying to get Harry Belafonte on this, and if you ever see him, I don't know if you know the story, but he tried to buy – he tried to uh, rent an apartment in New York. He couldn't rent it. They wouldn't give because he's black. And so he got his agent to go in and rent it for him. And before they knew it, he had already moved in. He eventually bought the building and made it a co-op. And it's a very interesting story, and he could be a uh, – really, if he wanted to, people would listen to him because of his statue and what all he's done, both in civil rights and in the acting world. Uh, you know,
1: New York City has something called Co-op City, yep. which was built in the uh, 50s and 60s. And it has 70,000 units, and it was built 100% with union pension funds, and Harry Belafonte was around for all of that. So wow. it's a very powerful symbol of what can happen in New York with people working together around cooperative principles. So he can talk about all of that. We've, uh, people have done this before. It's just now people of color, it's our opportunity to actually use it as well to deal with the kinds of problems we were talking about earlier.
0: Well, Martin Luther King wanted to do it. You go Martin, all the way back through history that it, it's, it's been a, and we brought it over from Africa and of, of sharing and working together. Uh, it's it's something that, you
1: know, black folks have been doing for centuries and I believe it's a competitive advantage. We're actually pretty experienced as social organization. We built the black church from nothing. We <laughs> built black colleges from nothing. We organized a social movement even as slaves to win the Civil War. You know, we actually have learned to rely on each other for survival, and we even built an identity. We didn't all come from the same country in Africa. We didn't have the same ancestors, speak in the same languages.
0: We built that solidarity. So that's what we need to do now in the economy. And we need to tell that story more because I don't hear us talking about how we built those things and we have this solidarity. I hear more about what we don't do well together. That's right. I like that. That's very, very positive, sir. Very, very positive. Thank you. Last minute, last thought.
1: Well, you know, I'm really so glad that you're having your show and this program And, you know, I just think we need to have a national conversation about uh, where the economy is headed and what we need to do to change its direction. Because unimpeded, we are in danger of becoming the next Roma, the people who are called gypsies, you know, in Europe, persecuted, divided.
0: Okay, sir, (laughs) that was my cue. We've got to go, but... That's a good place to go. I would like to be in that national conversation. Let's see if we can't get that going. Thank you very much for your time and your knowledge. Everybody out there, please have a wonderful week. Live cooperatively.